Hey everyone, this is David Green. I'm the co-founder of Fearless Media and your host here on Left, Right, and Center. This is the show where we take on all the political issues, even those complicated ones that, you know, might be dividing your own family these days. Well, maybe you thought we were done talking about the shifting balance of power in the U.S. Senate. Guess not. Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema has announced her departure from the Democratic Party to register as an independent. Now, if you followed Sinema's time in the Senate, she's been acting independently for quite some time, often complicating Democratic efforts to get bills passed. Math-wise, this shouldn't alter the landscape in the chamber too much. Democrats still have a 50 to 49 edge. Nevertheless, many Democrats are frustrated and wonder what this could mean for the party and what's already going to be a challenging Senate. As for the why here, well, Cinema claims this move will help her represent her constituents, though you got to wonder if she was trying anything to help herself. Her approval ratings among Democrats in Arizona have been abysmal. Many who supported her in 2018 see her as having betrayed them for her own interests, caring more about re-election than her commitment to her base. So she was very vulnerable to a primary challenge in two years if she runs, and going independent could be her only hope. Well, let's bring in our left, right, and center panel to dig in more on this and other stuff, we have Moa Lathy on the left, executive director at Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service. He was communications director for the Democratic National Committee and, when I met him so many years ago, an advisor to Hillary Clinton. And on the right, we have Sarah Isger, staff writer at The Dispatch, a lawyer, and was spokesperson at the Department of Justice under President Trump. And, update, we are all in the same room in Washington, D.C. I'm meeting Sarah for the first time in person. So this is fun, guys. Thank you. Mo, can we just start with some basic math here. I mean, even though Cinema's doing this, this is still going to feel like a 51-49 Senate, which gives Democrats more power than when it was 50-50, power to to move subpoenas through, power to move bills. The committee structure is going to be essentially the same. Um, so do I have that right, or, or should Democrats be concerned about numbers here? Well, I mean, I think that's more or less right. I mean, she has said it's not going to change how she votes. She tends to vote more as a Democrat. Uh, not as much as Democratic leadership would like, well, but still, votes, right, so much, right? But, yeah. but she still votes more as a Democrat. Uh, Chuck Schumer has said this isn't going to change committee composition, uh, and so they will still be able to do the things that they want to do. They'll still be able to move through judicial nominees, which is you know one of the big things that they want to do. So um, I, I don't think it's going to have much of a substantive. Impact. She's always been sort of an outsider within the caucus. Now she's just going to be an outsider outside the caucus. She's, she doesn't go to Democratic caucus meetings now. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not a change. Because um, Bernie Sanders does, even though he's independent. Angus right. King does, even though he's that's independent. Right. That's why we say it's like 50 to 49. She's not technically right, but, saying she's in the caucus, but she's going to vote. Right, you know, but, but uh, she uh, reportedly hasn't been attending these caucus meetings anyway. So uh, I don't think it's going to have much of a substantive impact. It's the political impact that's going to be more profound. And what's that political impact? It, what it could do to the balance of power two years from now in 2026 or 2024 when um, her seat is up for re-election. And Democrats now have a very tough decision to make. Um do you support someone who's an independent or do you support someone who calls themselves a member of the party? Right. And and if there is a three-way race, it gives an opportunity for the Republican nominee, like a, for example, Carrie Lake, who just lost that governor's race, to then have a much easier path to uh, to election. And so 
uh, you know, th- th- there's still a lot of runway. We'll see what the dynamics look like. We'll see whether or not Arizonans themselves, not just Arizona Democrats, but the broader electorate sees this is a good thing or a bad thing. But it is going to complicate the math quite a bit. How do you make that decision if you're the party? Like, are you watching how she behaves well, in, 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 on some of these big votes? Are you thinking about just how do we protect the seat? First thing I'll say is the party doesn't get to really decide this, right? I mean, Sarah and I have talked about this before in the past. We have weak parties. There's no smoke-filled back room where the party says, you may run, you may not. There are going to be money. Com- there I mean, are going to be people who run, and the the voters will decide. Um, but every indication, and this could be an interesting rift between the Arizona Democratic Party and National Democrats, depending on what they decide to do. The Arizona Democratic Party is already on the dump cinema train. They were on the dump cinema train before she switched parties. They censured her for her not voting to get rid of the filibuster, for not being a pure Democrat in their eyes. They put out a scathing, scathing, scathing statement against her when she switched parties. National Democrats kind of were quiet. Um, I think the National Democrats understand that this could be complicated. Um, And so my guess is that they're going to kind of remain quiet on this in the meantime and see how things play out over the next year, year and a half. So you were nodding your head dramatically when Mo brought up the idea of this rift in the the state and and national parties. I think one of the themes of this podcast will be the upsides and downsides of a new political landscape with incredibly weak parties. Mm -hmm. And as you said, it's not actually going to be up to the DNC or the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee uh, as to whether there is a viable Democratic challenger in Arizona. Ruben Gallego has all but said he is running. He did the cable news rounds the night she made this announcement. He was with Anderson Cooper and Chris Hayes saying, uh, this doesn't make any difference to whether I'm going to run. And also, don't assume that it will elect a Republican. Maybe Kristen Sinema will take more votes from the Republican side of the ledger. Look, there is an argument for that. I don't think it's the best argument. But if you look at her approval numbers right now, she actually is more popular with Republicans in the state than she is with Democrats, although it's kind of a race to the bottom. It's actually her her uh, disapproval numbers are at 54% with Republicans and 57% with Democrats as of a few months ago, at least. Um, but absolutely, if you have uh, Kristen Cinema in a primary, she was going to lose to Gallego. I don't think there's much question about that. Right. It, it, it probably, probably would have been right. double digits. And so this is a game of chicken where she's announced that she cut her brake lines. Um, So she's going to run as an independent, dare them to still nominate Gallego and put real effort behind this. Um, And maybe they split it three ways. But of course, more likely in that situation, Republicans consolidate again uh, around the Republican nominee with some interesting, I mean, this is Arizona after all. Mm -hmm. Republicans could absolutely light themselves on fire. Let's not underestimate that possibility. But they'd be in good position. I mean, Carrie Lake is looking at this and saying like, well, this looks nice. Yeah, Carrie Lake didn't lose by, by 20 points, which is, you know, you assume Gallego in the worst of days would get 20 points of any electorate or um, Kristen Cinema for that matter. So that's a tough case to make. Now, in terms of what they can do about it, you mentioned money, David, but, you know, what we saw in 2018 or 2020, I'm forgetting which um, cycle it was, money was not at all a predictor of who won these Senate races. Democrats outspent Republicans, I think, in 17 races or something, and they won nine of them. You know, it was just a total coin flip, not based on fundraising 
dollars. So the idea that somehow the DS, you know, CC could um, uh, not fund Gallego, you know, they do have a policy. It's not a rule, but it's a policy of funding incumbents. Angus King is considered an incumbent. Bernie Sanders is considered an incumbent, even though, even though they're they are not technically they Democrats. With the Democrats. That's she right. Won't be. So what? Unclear. How do they treat it? How do they treat well, her? Look, we and here's know. and here's the other thing on money though. Cinema is probably one of the least favorite senators to the national democratic progressive base. The people who log on and give $25 to candidates in other states right around the country. Gallego, who is a true progressive— and is very charismatic and, and does Harvard have— Harvard-educated, Iraqi war vet, I mean, he is a fantastic young. candidate in that for that seat in any cycle. Mm-hmm. He will get a lot of attention. It will be a double whammy. Progressives love him and they hate her. But he, could so he the win money in will, Arizona? Could he win the primary? Could, 100%. Oh, no, no, no. Could he win a general Could he win a general election? Look, I think Arizona is a tight state no matter who runs these days. It's the Wild West, literally and figuratively. Literally and figuratively. So you think he could win in Arizona? I mean, a, a, I a solid base but, Democrat, I mean, could— Because it depends on who the Republicans yeah. nominate. It depends on what that—I think, frankly, who's at the top of the ticket uh, for both parties— there are so many unknowns right now when it comes to that Arizona race, except the one known, which is Democrats are in a sticky situation. It it sounds like both of you are, are hinting that there's 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 some larger stuff going on when it comes to, to the parties and money and how much control they have. You're both saying that the, the parties are weak right now. What, yes. what does that mean and what are the implications of that? Look, I mean, once we democratize democracy, it changed the game. Right. And I'm not. That sounds has, like a good thing to. It, right? it, but it, well, it should, in, have been. it should have been. But it has <laughs> it seemed raised that some way issues. On paper. Yeah. Right. I mean, look, there was a time when party bosses would sit around and they would determine who their party's nominees were going to be. And then they would have some control over what those candidates said. Once we opened up the floodgates and said, party bosses, you don't get to say, voters get to say, Voters oftentimes have very different perceptions. Sometimes that can lead to tremendous candidates, right? People like Ronald Reagan on the right, people like Barack Obama in the Democratic Party, who never would have gotten the establishment support in the beginning. Uh, And they won over Democratic voters and helped redefine their parties. But we have also seen the downside of that. We saw how Donald Trump defeated the Republican Party before he defeated the Democratic Party in 2016. He was 100% the anti-establishment candidate, in many ways still is, but he had a message that appealed to a plurality of Republican primary voters. Uh, We've seen this time and time again. The parties now, they don't control their message, right? I was the former communications director of the Democratic National Committee. Your job literally was to control the message. But it wasn't. My job was to amplify the message that was being decided by congressional leadership and the White House during the Obama administration. Mm. The party has no say over and There was its a time message. when that wasn't the case, where the party would control the message. Right, and you look at some other countries, a place like the UK, for example. Candidates for parliament in the UK have to be interviewed by the local party committees. They then decide who they're going to pick to represent the party in the election. They hand them here. They tell them, here's how much you have to spend. Here's the manifesto. Say it in your own words. But this is what you're going to say. And that's what they do. So there's much more control. Now, you can say that, well, that's a good thing. We don't want the parties to have that much control. But when you look at the state of our politics today, they're really 
it's it is our politics coming back to to this theme. It, it is the wild wild west. It's why you can see people like Marjorie Taylor Greene emerging. Uh, on the right and able to hold the potential speaker designate hostage on issue after issue because she doesn't need the party. She doesn't need the party's money. She can just go say something crazy and raise $3 million overnight in $25 increments. It was a time that the Republican Party could have made sure that she did not get a big voice and, and have that influence. She wouldn't have won. She wouldn't have gotten the nomination. If she'd gotten the nomination, she wouldn't have won the election. If she'd won the election, she would have been... Uh, completely marginalized. So this is part of my grand unified theory. This is a piece of it, which is uh, campaign finance reform, the bipartisan campaign reform act that McCain ran on in 2000, the McCain-Feingold bill in 2002 that was passed into law. Yeah. um, Seemed really good on paper, right? You set these federal limits uh, lower. The amount that the parties can spend is then capped. It was basically a party slush fund, where as long as it wasn't going directly to candidates and you were just giving it to the RNC or the DNC, you could basically give unlimited amounts, what we would now think of as dark money. Um, And so the parties were incredibly powerful because they were taking that huge pot of money and deciding which candidates were actually going to have the imprimatur of the party on it. And it was also the only source of money, major donors and the party. And uh, what happened after Bikra, which again, on paper looked really good. I was against party power, right? I was young and idealistic and I was so into John McCain because of all of this. Take money and influence out. And That's like right. Power to the people. There's too much money in politics because here's what's happened. Major donors no longer are important in uh, running a campaign. But what's the downside of taking money out of politics? <clears throat> right, because we didn't take money out of we politics. Right. What's, we're, what's we're, the downside of whatever There's happened. a huge amount more because the, um, the Bernie Sanders, the Barack Obamas, and now obviously the Republicans have learned that small dollar donors, those 5 and 10 $20 donors, you can raise a lot more money from them than you ever could with the major donors, but also it doesn't take your candidate's time away. You know, if you're campaigning in a state like Iowa, your major donors aren't in Iowa, so you were having to fly to Los Angeles and New York and Chicago to, for those fundraisers. Now, you sit in Iowa and everything your candidate says, you clip it onto social media, that's the fundraiser. And the problem is those 5 10 $20 donors aren't actually representative of voters. They're not even representative of their parties. They make up, you know, roughly 2% of the voters in the country. And that 2% we know is turned on by emotion, by anger, by resentment. And so if you need to raise money, which you still do, you're going to do it by saying those things in your rallies on TV that can get clipped for social media for the purpose of fundraising that are turning on that 2%, and that's what's become so dangerous. Right. It's completely shifted, completely shifted the incentive structure. Moderates do not write $25 checks to people on the other side of the country. It's the people on the, the, the most uh, passionate on the left and on the right are the ones who do it. That then becomes the new power broker for all of these candidates. All right, we will be back to talk about uh, the attempted coup in Germany and uh, its potential connection to what we saw in the uh, January 6th insurrection here in the United States. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center. You're hearing civilized yet provocative opinions from across the political spectrum. Now we need to know what you think. Tweet us at LRCKCRW.
Hey there, we're back again with Left, Right, and Center. I'm David Green, the co-founder of Fearless Media. On the left, we have Moa Lathy, executive director at Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service. And on the right, Sarah Isger, a lawyer, a staff writer at The Dispatch, and former spokesperson at the Department of Justice under President Trump. Uh, in Germany last week, uh, we saw something incredibly scary. Intelligence intercepted a plot by an extreme right-wing group to overthrow the government. This plot was linked to conspiracy theories, including QAnon and similar right-wing doctrine proliferating in the United States. German police arrested 25 people who were planning to take over the government by force and create a state of civil war in the country by taking out the power grid and also through a series of attacks around the country. So, we have a QAnon connection. We have a group uh, with violent plans. Many of the members of this group, former police officers, military members. Sarah, is this another version of January 6th playing out in a different part of the world, or, or are there differences here? Yes and no. And I, I say yes because we have certainly seen that Donald Trump, for instance, was not an American phenomenon. It was a a international phenomenon, I believe, that you can trace um, – easily back to the 2008 financial collapse. But as Mo and others have also made arguments, you can trace it back much further than that as well, that the seeds were were there and were growing. And the financial collapse pours a lot of, you know, water and fertilizer on it. Um, we saw populist movements everywhere as elite structures and institutions lost trust, um, sometimes very rightly so, sometimes maybe with, with less reason. But we've seen that phenomenon Internationally, So that's the part where I say yes. In terms of the discrete, is this like January 6th? Um, no, in both good and bad ways. I think January 6th um, was a scarier threat to American self-government because it was a lot more people and those people were in a frenzy. It was more of a mob. Certainly when we're looking at the trials of January 6th conspirators, for instance, there was some planning that went on ahead of time, but not um, not in sort of a Guy Fox-ish way where they were, you know, having meetings together and they had actual serious, well-thought-out plans that involved then all these tens of thousands of people coming with them type thing. This like lit a fire among a lot of people and their behavior was unpredictable. That's and we exactly had no idea right. what was going to happen. Germany yeah. scary, but it was like a— but it was different scary. Yeah. Um, so I think January 6th uh, was was scary for the frenzy reason, far more so if we had had 25 Oath Keepers go to the Capitol on January 6th, America is very well positioned to deal with that threat. We're far less well positioned, as we saw, to deal with a mob. Mo, do you, do, what, what, how do you reflect on what happened in Germany as we think about what's happening? At <clears throat> yeah, look, I mean, they nipped it in the bud. Right. And, and thank God for that. What would have happened had they actually organized a rally? What had uh, the way they did here? What if they actually were able to bring people together under the auspices of a protest rally and allow it to then get out of control, which in large part is what happened on January 6th. They brought a bunch of people together and just fomented this this anger in real time. Luckily, it didn't get to that point. But the seeds of that anger, I think, are still the same. Um, maybe for different reasons. It's not specifically about 
an election result, but it is about a But lo- neither was January 6th. Right? I mean, if you want to, like, you know— but That's what I'm saying, yeah. is that, you know, where the seeds are, the, are similar in that what really, I think, is fueling a lot of these movements is a sense of being wronged and a sense of a large portion of a population feeling like something is being taken from them that they are losing a control that they once had, that their community once had, that their identity once had. It's fueled by an anxiety around a changing world that they don't feel like is benefiting them, and it's happening to benefit everybody but them. And that's Some of not that new is economic. In history. I mean, my it's God, not. every hundred years I can point you to, every time, to a similar situation. That's right. I mean, every time we see a major economic transformation— Right. Mm-hmm. A, lot, so a lot of the rhetoric we hear today was similar to the rhetoric we heard a century ago. What was happening a century ago? The transition from the in- agrarian to the industrial economy. Now we're in a transition from an industrial to a digital economy. Part yeah. of that is economic, but it's also massive cultural change, social change. Um, and, and Progressive policies largely championed by, I mean, in our country, the, the Democratic Party. Yeah. Um, Right, but it's it's it is a sense of a major cultural power shift and imbalance that they feel is happening at their expense, and that I think is what fuels uh, a lot of the hate crime that we see. That fuels a lot of this anti-government and anti-corporate. It is look. I think one of the big differences between the far right and the far left is that the far left, they both share a certain degree of a sense of being victimized. The far left feeling like they were never given opportunities that everybody else had. The far right believing that every opportunity is being taken away from them. And that is fueling a huge amount of of anger uh, that we're now seeing start to manifest itself physically uh, in a lot of places. It's why time and again, though, at the most extreme, and, and this is why I, I find some of these conversations difficult to pin down, because as people who fall very much in the mainstream Overton window of political you know, spectrum in the United States, when we talk about far right or far left, actual extremist groups or people who have committed violence in this country, um, the Buffalo shooter or the person who attacked Paul Pelosi, what you end up finding is that they were rummaging around in Occupy Wall Street as much as QAnon, as much as, you know, they had these transformations for exactly what you just said, Mo. Let me be clear. I'm not saying the Occupy Wall Street movement is a far left extremist movement, um, but rather that the people who end up in the far left or far right extremist sides started by consuming um, more, let's call them more just fringe uh, on on the normal spectrum, though. So how do we, like, I, I've been thinking about this, too, and really puzzling. Like, what what does far right mean? Like, if you are someone who believes in a lot of the the politics or shares the politics of people who literally stormed the Capitol in that insurrection, but you weren't actually out there. I mean, isn't that act of violence just an extension of far right politics that a lot of people share? Or are these two like entirely different things we should be using different terms for them? Well, I mean, let's also take Antifa. You know, you think back to the 20, 
2016 election or the 2017 inauguration, K Street burned in Washington, D.C. All of those businesses were boarded up. All of those windows were shattered. There were riots. They were violent in the streets. And those were, you know, quote unquote, far left Antifa activists who, you know, had their heads covered. What is your ideology when you just want to see the whole thing burn? I mean, I can hear people screaming at you right now, like through my headphones. Yeah. Like you can't, you know, conf- I mean, bring you why can't compare Antifa and, and, and January 6th. Like, why, what, is, what, what why is, is breaking like, all the windows on K Street, lighting things on fire, running down the streets, assaulting people in 2017? I understand it's different in terms of the threat to the peaceful transfer of power, kind of. But in terms of the violence. I mean, one one point that people have made looking back to that time is that the response from the government to things like Antifa protests, which, you know, it was it was intense. It was fierce. There were tanks on the streets and the Capitol like, you know, that that there wasn't much of that. Um, What worries me a little bit here in the U.S. is how our political establishment is reacting to both, right? It always I, I always cringe when people say Antifa is on the left. The political left historically in this country has been defined by the sense that government is good, that more government is good, that there is a role for government to play to create more opportunity. And but that's Tifa, the funny thing about the far right, the like QAnon-y folks who want authoritarianism because conservatism right. has been defined by a classical liberal Correct. individual freedom. Correct. So the way we – our political rhetoric here defines the far left <laughs> and the far right are very inconsistent with the traditional left and the traditional right, right? Where, where it concerns me is the difference in how our political establishment is reacting to both. There is nobody in the political left who is embracing Antifa, who is saying, you know what, you got a point and we're going to court you anti-government people to come into our side. That's not happening anywhere. You don't think that it obviously they're not saying it that way. But when we think about um, Portland or uh what happened in the Minnesota elections around defunding the police? Not the slogan, mm-hmm. but the actual policies that Antifa was was wanting. Defunding police, having their own autonomous zones. The, the way that the left dealt with some of those was very different than if you had had a Republican governor in, you know, Oregon dealing with that. Don't you think? I don't. And, I, and look, I think with, you know, uh, there, there are— there are people on the left who do believe that there needs to be major wholesale change in some places. Those people are getting defeated in elections, by the way, right? Um, but they're still not embracing a burn the whole thing down attitude. What worries me about the right is, you know, your point is is so dead on, Sarah, that like what the far right espouses is antithetical to traditional conservative ideology. And yet, the mainstream right is, at the, is, if not embracing, at the very least playing footsie with the far right. They're making the political calculus that is important to court those voters as part of our political coalition. We saw the same thing in Israel with Bibi Netanyahu courting some incredibly 
uh, uh, fringe elements on the far right in that country in order to maintain or regain political control. Well, but also like the, the, the I mean, the message came from voters too, like the the parliament that was just elected that sort of, you know, put Bibi in this spot in a lot of ways. But he campaigned with them, right? Like, I mean, fewer fewer in the Arab minority who are now there, fewer women. Like, it's almost like a rejection in Israel right now of progressive policies. And there's real fear for for LGBTQ rights, Mm -hmm. for for Arab rights. Mm -hmm. Um, And and Bibi is putting people in this government. It's going to be the most far-right government in history. But that's so interesting to me because I wonder, like, that feels different than, like, Germany in January 6th, but it's still a far-right movement. It's still some kind of rejection of progressive policies that I suppose people do feel are taking their rights away. I mean, but and a, conservative policies. That's the point that I want right. to make. Okay. And conservative. And conservative. And the, I would agree with the that. the rejection of the underlying principles of mainstream liberalism and mainstream conservatism. I mean, look, I, and, and I may have said this on the show before, right? I think we have undergone a transformation of our political paradigm away from the historical left versus right that has defined our politics going back to the birth of the republic, which is the question over what is the appropriate size and scope of government. Over the past 40, 50 years, we have moved away from a left versus right paradigm to a front versus back paradigm. And you think not just in the U.S., in the world. In the world. People who feel stuck at the back against people who they see in front of them holding them back. And and 90% of the country believes that they are stuck at the back and that everyone else is getting theirs. Why can't I get mine? But we are increasingly seeing this become a social, cultural, identity construct and I think it is being normalized more by the political mainstream on the right than it is being normalized by the political mainstream on the left. Can I say one other thing? You know, I talked about what I saw as the 2008 financial collapse adding a lot of fuel mm-hmm. to this realignment, as you said, between left and right versus front and back or top and bottom. Um, I also think, interestingly, you see it in countries with a decline in religious belief as politics, something um, provides people meaning in their life. It used to be religion for a lot of people, or the Elk Club. This is the Robert Putnam bowling alone phenomenon, sure. right? Um, so I that don't sense of community and connection too. Yeah, community and connection. I mean, more than um, deity-based uh, belief, but for most people, it was religion. That has declined precipitously, and we hit a tipping point. I think where that decline down is really speeding up both here and abroad. And what you see is then people having their political ideology fill in some of that void, social media, um, allowing that to happen in a way that was never the case before. So that if you want, if you already feel in the fringe for whatever reason, and you want to find other people who share that community with you, that's where you know, Reddit, you can get on the QAnon thread or whatever and be like, yeah, that totally. I'm, I believe that the rich are eating children or I'm sorry, I'm not actually that familiar with QAnon's belief, but I know (laughs) there's some odd children uh, eating stuff or drinking their blood or something. There's a lot of odd stuff. Okay. Whatever it is, like you can now find that community that again, it used to be where you would go to church or the Elk Club or your bowling league. Um, And that's an important part of this. It's a sense of belonging for a lot of people. I want to pick up this conversation right where we're leaving it when we come back. Uh, we'll be back with uh, Mo Lathe and Sarah Isker in just a second. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center. Thanks for listening to Left, Right, and Center. 
Is there someone in your life who could benefit from hearing a civilized discussion from all sides? Share the show with them. You can stream all episodes at kcrw.com slash LRC, straight from the KCRW app or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, we're back again with Left, Right, and Center. I'm your host, David Green. On the right, we have Sarah Isger, staff writer at The Dispatch, and on the left, Moa Lathy, executive director at Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service. I, I want to pick up where we, we were. Um, just thinking about a lot of the, the kind of rejection of the mainstream that we're talking about, not just in the United States, but in the world, um, what kind of leaders does that lead I mean, we're talking about Netanyahu. Netanyahu was kind of cozy with um, a far-right U.S. president named Donald Trump. A lot of people are worried about authoritarianism growing around the world. Um, But isn't it interesting that Donald Trump, you know, I think that the headlines poll show that Donald Trump is cratering are overblown at this moment, Mm -hmm. but they are directional, and he is certainly losing altitude. And the you know, person replacing him um, on the right, Ron DeSantis, is not Donald Trump. Um, Whether that is coming out of COVID, whether it is an economic recovery followed by supply chain issues and inflation and other things, um, I I do want to make sure I'm looking bigger picture than just American trends. But But this might be the United States in a way saying, okay, these trends are scary, we're going to push back a little bit, or democracy is going to push back, I mean, we maybe. Did, we did His a, approval number in the Republican Party is at around 70%. It was at 95%. And I'm talking about Donald Trump yeah. here. Well, that's something. That is a real change in terms of who Republicans want to be their standard bearer um, and who they believe can win a general election in this country. I mean, look, the midterms demonstrated that American voters may be pushing back a little bit, rejecting a number of these candidates for Senate, for governor, for secretary of state. They still showed up to vote. But they barely rejected them. In race, In race after race <laughs> after race, with a few exceptions, they were narrow, right? Carrie Lake in Arizona barely lost that governor's race. And a number of these races... You know, uh, we saw shifts. uh, We saw these races decided by fewer than five points. And so you can, I think, on one hand, legitimately breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief that, okay, we have not wholesale lost our minds. We are, you know, keeping an eye out for this kind of thing and pushing back. But it also shows that it's still very, it's still very fragile landscape. And that if 10,000 votes in this state or 20,000 votes in this state shifted, um, we would be further embracing it. And speaking of the global trend that we're saying maybe the United States is pushing back against or not, I, I just want to play the voice of a Nobel Peace Prize winner, Maria Ressa, who's also um, an extraordinarily brave journalist mm-hmm. uh, in the Philippines, talking about what she is seeing happening in the world right now. You know, there's a reason why 60% of the world today is now under authoritarian rule. The number of democracies globally has been rolled back to 1989 levels. If you don't have facts, you can't have truth. Without truth, you can't have trust. Without these three, we have no shared reality. We can't solve any problems. We have no democracy. That's what social media has done. It has come in 
and used free speech to stifle free speech. What do you both think of that? And to what extent is social media in the United States and in the world um, sort of driving people to the extremes? It's fascinating. This was always the theory of the USSR and to a large extent it's China's theory now, which is the decadence of the West – These democracies will cause its demise. There's an inherent weakness in democratic values um, that obviously authoritarian governments can simply set a direction and go that way. Now, on the flip side, we saw that that has an inherent weakness to it, a a brittleness that the USSR uh, caused its collapse. Um, But I think that decadence aspect of the West, there's some truth to that as well that democracies do have inherent weaknesses and Achilles heels, social media has found one of those. It doesn't mean that it will be like this forever, though, because social media inherently, and part of a capitalist society, has to make money. And as we're seeing with Twitter, um, the the formula changes, the it um, platform changes. Twitter was never actually a particularly big platform in the United States or the world. TikTok has come out of nowhere and is now overtaking those. The young kids don't use Facebook. So when we talk about social media, I think it's important to note there is not a monolithic social media. There are individual companies. They rise and fall. Um, and while I think that they have exposed a weakness in one of our most cherished values in the United States, which is speech and the right to speak your mind on any issue, frankly, to get back to our previous conversations, both sides of the political spectrum have done plenty to undermine that value more than I think social media was ever going to do, which is shutting down conversations that they don't like. College campuses are not being shut down because of Twitter or Facebook. They're being shut down because there is a generation of Americans who haven't automatically bought into that value the way we kind of thought they would. We needed to inculcate them into that, and we didn't. Look, I think the final part of that clip you played resonated with me about the erosion of trust. The erosion of trust in our institutions pre, far predates the rise of social media. We've been seeing a steady decrease of trust in our institutions and not just government. Our political discourse has been dominated by the debate over the erosion of trust in government. But over the past few decades, we've seen an erosion of trust in every major institution in the United States. You know, I remember earlier in my political career helping to write uh, television ad scripts, which, you know, working with candidates who would say, we're going to run government more like a business. They don't say that anymore because people don't trust business. They don't trust the private sector. They don't trust media. They don't trust academia. They don't trust anything. The Watergate phenomenon has come home to roost everywhere. It's And it's in every institution. And so that is the problem. Social media was the accelerant. Uh, Social media took it to the next level. And it allowed bad actors to have a greater impact to spread their misinformation, disinformation. Misinformation, disinformation didn't begin with social media, but it just made it a lot easier to spread. I mean, a lot. I mean, I I was shocked (laughs) to see some of these numbers. So there's a Pew study that found half of Americans get their news from social media, which sort of surprised me because I'm like Twitter, you know, Twitter, as much as we talk about Twitter, it's like small community. But if you add up, I mean, you know, I have family members who are still on Facebook and are now getting news from Facebook, which I've never done 
in my life. And the percentage of college students getting their news from TikTok, from yeah, TikTok, hundred percent. So and, TikTok. and then from fake the Chinese news. Government. Fake news travels six times faster yes. online and reaches ten times yes. more people than real news stories. Um, yes. That's according to a University of North Carolina study. And and here's the real kicker. In this economy here in the United States, we're seeing media layoffs all over the place. CNN, BuzzFeed, yes. Vice, Gannett. Um, and that's following the gutting of regional and local, of local news, which has been a huge, huge problem. Look, I right. think what well, do we do? I mean, what this it, it seems like <laughs> all the problems it, we've talked solve about it. <laughs> today, like, you know, f- I mean, far right or far right and far left and, and you know, driving away from the middle. And, you know, as, as we just heard, I mean, social media playing some kind of role potentially in the loss of trust and the loss of truth and the loss of shared reality and more authoritarianism spreading around the world, it it feels frightening. By the way, all of that is still the, you know, the democratization of our politics. When we talked about the democratization of the donor base, for instance, and that uh, leading to the death of the political parties, this is all still part of that conversation. It's Although the I would argue that journalists used to control the message more because there was more trust in, I mean, in people uh, like myself who were delivering. There were also only three Maybe. stations on my TV. But, but, yeah, but on, we but weren't a political on. party. Like, but, I want to believe that we but, were delivering but, truth. But, but hold on. Is, That's just historically not been the case until TV, true. right? It used to be that New York City had seven daily newspapers. And you knew what someone's politics were by which one they bought, right? Because and, – and that political influence seeped into the editorial. When TV came along, this newfangled thing, suddenly we were all hearing the same thing and it created a baseline from which we could start our conversation. But that only lasted a couple of decades as the norm before we started seeing talk radio take off and cable news take off, where once again, and then the digital era and the internet, suddenly we were going back to buying our daily newspaper that reinforced what we already thought. We were just doing digitally or electronically and at scale. Why is it so dangerous now? It's because it is feeding into this growing sense of uh, of oh, this growing loss of trust across all institutions, right? I mean, I, I saw a global poll recently. I forget who did it. But they asked, what's your trust in government? And for the first time, they've been asking this question for quite some time. For the first time, more people said, more people who lived in authoritarian regimes said they trusted their government than people who lived in democratic regimes. Really? Now, you take that with a grain of salt. Yeah, Somebody gets a phone call <laughs> right. from in an authoritarian regime do saying, you like do you like Vladimir Putin? Right? <laughs> but it's the first time we've actually seen that dynamic. You used to still see, I think the story is not a rise of trust in authoritarian regimes, but it's the complete it's the loss, loss of trust in, in democratic regimes. And we're again, we're seeing it across every single major institution. There have always been conspiracy theories. There have always been crazy theories out there. But a majority of this country, I would say probably nothing even close to a plurality of this country believes Bigfoot is real or the Loch Ness Monster, right? What the stuff that we're questions. seeing out there. <laughs> yeah, don't be, don't be so quick to, if, to dismiss, if, if you are one of those people, you may contact Sarah. And, uh-huh. but, it, but the reason that this is getting traction elsewhere is because people are, are weaponizing that lack of trust in our institutions. And so it's easier to push theories about a corrupt government or a corrupt corporate structure because there's significant 
numbers of people out there that already believe that. And now they're seeing a piece of information being shared by their Aunt Sally on social media that validates, right? Everything I've been feeling must be true if Aunt Sally is sharing this quote-unquote article that she saw somewhere that validates what I what I and believe. And don't forget, again, back to what we talked about before, saying those extreme things that are outraging to people, that anger them, is a far better way to raise money than the, uh, you know, or get clicks. Or, you know, it's not just political candidates, but also news organizations that are now relying on a different form of revenue than they ever were relying on before. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene openly talks about Jewish-controlled space lasers. Don't you have questions? (laughs) (laughs) And she's able to raise more money than almost any political candidate, including many in leadership. Which brings this conversation full circle. But if she were sitting there saying, um, you know, I have real questions about the ownership of our media organizations, that wouldn't raise any money. The point is the conspiracy theory or misinformation is far more effective at driving revenue for these organizations and driving money for candidates than the moderates. I actually don't think that it's that the Marjorie Taylor Greens would have been moderate 20 years ago. It's that those people weren't running because they had no chance of winning. Now, the exact opposite is happening. The people who have calm, rational things to say, who have potential solutions for some of the actual problems we're facing, they don't run anymore because they won't win. And if they do win, I mean, this is a separate rant, but Congress has been so gutted in terms of its power uh, that you there's no point in being a member of the House of Representatives for again, someone who wants to pursue a solution. And again, it's all connected, right? I yes. mean, we all know about Marjorie Taylor Greene's crazy things, crazy statements, because the media covers it. They don't cover the quiet, solution-oriented, right. moderate in either party. Well, and that's where the onus is on the, the news business. To, to not to, well, why do they do that? Because the argument in the newsroom is because voters elected her. I mean, that's the that's this is part the of it. That but why else? Right? Why is it that the highest-rated hosts on cable news on every network are the ones who say the loudest and, in some cases, most outlandish things? Because people tune in. Mm-hmm. Well, the question is, to, to me is the question: How in the news business? Do you both restore trust in the institution and deliver information in places where people want to be? Whatever people who are still on Facebook getting their news from Aunt Sally, it's like, what do we in the news business, what can we do to to meet her where she is and restore her trust? And if it's TikTok, it's like, how how do we create clickbaity actual real information that people news. actually actual believe news. in clickbaity yeah. news? And that and that is that. It, that sounds like an impossible task, but it's it's part of what we need to do. And sadly, we need to leave it there. But I promise we in the news business will keep trying. Fix it, David. Oh, <laughs> right. Okay, we have reached that time once again for our famed left, right, and center rants and raves featuring pet peeves and projects from across the political spectrum. And I am going to start today, if you all don't mind, because um, I want to rave about a moment that kind of gave me hope for our country and our politics. And, and Mo, it actually reminded uh, me of a moment last week when you talked about loving taking your daughter to Georgetown women's basketball games and WNBA games because, you know, you see her so inspired. Um, well, former House Speaker Republican John Boehner was at a ceremony to unveil a portrait of Speaker Nancy Pelosi in the Capitol. Uh, and he said this. And Madam Speaker, I have to say, my girls told me, tell this speaker 
how much we admire her. Boehner did mention then that his daughters are Democrats, which um, got a laugh. But still, what a moment. I'm sure you see what I mean. I, uh, I, I kind of. I kind of teared up, I will admit publicly. You're um, a weeper. Yeah, I'm a weeper. I, I do weep. Uh, so that's my rave. Um, Sarah, you want to you go next? I have a rant apology. For 15 plus years, I have ranted at people who refer to the attorney general as general or the solicitor general as general. It really bothers me. They're not generals. They're attorneys general because the attorney is the noun and the general is the adjective. And so even at the Supreme Court, I listen to all of the arguments and the justices will sometimes refer to the Solicitor General as general. And it drives me up the wall. And I have been ranting and ranting. However, um, someone just pointed out to me, I am I am both embarrassed and not embarrassed to tell all of you strangers that I was today years old when I found out that the military generals are also adjectives. It refers to general officer. So my whole rant about how they're not military generals and you shouldn't refer to them as that has no basis in grammar whatsoever. And I apologize to everyone I've ever spoken to. Okay, Mo. (laughs) My rave is going to be part penance for everything I have said today up till now. Because as I reflect on our conversation, it sure sounds like I got a problem with democracy. And (laughs) I got to say, democracy has a lot of flaws, but I still wouldn't trade it for the world. And we can still see it working at times. We can still see us push back, as as we said, against authoritarianism. We can still see it when people reject the crazy. We can still see it work when actual things get done. This week we saw um, the passage of the Respect for Marriage Act in a bipartisan way. We still are a country and a system of government that can lift people up, that can bring people together, that can result in making people's lives better. That can only happen in a democracy. I'm raising a glass of democracy today. This is where I say, but we're a republic. <laughs> oh, boy. Crying out loud. Well, on that note, um, it was fun to be in person with both both of you. God bless Zoom, but let's do it uh, in person more often. Um, thank you to Sarah Isger and to Mo Lathy, uh, and also to the amazing team who puts the show together. Left, Right, and Center is produced by Sarah Singer Schiff. Our production assistant is Alexandra Applegate. The show is recorded and mixed by Matt Schwartz. Todd M. Simon composed our theme music. Left, Right, and Center is a co-production of KCRW and Fearless Media. I am David Green. We appreciate you joining us, and uh, we hope you come back next time for more Left, Right, and Center. Download and subscribe at kcrw.com slash LRC, the KCRW app, or wherever you find podcasts. Left, Right, and Center is produced and distributed by KCRW. 